Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. Outside of very specific industries that is saying like, no, 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 no. We need to focus on understanding what our customers' needs are, desires, our motivations are in order to impact their behaviors, good, bad, or otherwise. You mean you can't just read a book and not do the sort of 27 years of academic research and everything else that you guys have done? Okay, but what if I've also watched some TED Talk? (laughs) How it changes the way we approach the problem is let's not just tell people they're wrong, but let's understand like what fundamental need are they filling from engaging in that maladaptive behavior. Okay, Colin. So the central conceit of our podcast, the reason people listen to us, I assume, is because we we bring these two different perspectives to customer experience. You have that practical side, the experience of having done this stuff in the field. I've got the ivory tower kind of scientist training. So I thought that what we would do today is bring in two people who actually have both of these things. They have the academic training, and then they also work out in the field doing this stuff now can i just interrupt you from so there's an ivory tower which they're now out in the field on is that right is that what you're saying yeah i mean that doesn't actually make sense what you said but <laughs> sure yeah let's let's say that i thought this was a brilliant idea until i realized that both of these guests alone are better at this than the two of us are together so oh yeah from like a job security standpoint, this is I'm realizing really late in this, this was not a good idea. Maybe we've got some new co-hosts with us. Uh, yeah, or like competition that will just knock us off the air either, yeah. either way. I'm so, sure that would be more the case. I'm, I'm sure they're, they're dying to get into this podcast space. Where are all the actions? Let me introduce my two very good friends who agreed to be on the podcast today. Annie Wilson is a behavioral scientist. She got her doctorate in behavioral science and marketing at Harvard Business School, and she now works in behavioral finance. Welcome, Annie. Thanks, Ryan. Welcome, Annie. Thank you. We also have Lauren Cheatham. She got her PhD in marketing and behavioral science at Stanford University. She worked for a few years as a professor at the University of Hawaii, And then she worked at Apple as a data scientist, and now she is at a large tech firm in user experience and behavioral science doing that. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Lauren. That Hawaii gig must have been bad news. It was terrible, terrible weather. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the burden of all the pineapple eating alone. So much. I know. Really tears up the roof of the mouth. (laughs) So... I'm interested in your kind of experience in having had this academic training and then going into behavioral sciences in a very, very practical way. So I I guess the, the first question is kind of in a broad sense, what do you do? Like kind of what's what's the nature of 
your job? How do you how do you bring behavioral science into the, the work environment? Great question. We're wondering the same thing. <laughs> um, let me just pull up the job description. Yeah, I, I guess like in short, I sit on an experimentation team. And so our goal is to apply behavioral science at our jobs. And so we do a blend of experimenting with by using behavioral principles and theories to guide decision making, whether that's the decisions of clients or advisors or people within our company and to improve financial decision-making using behavioral theories, but really rooting that application in experimentation. So what I would say is we do kind of all the things we used to do in academia, short of going through the the publication process, and there's a greater emphasis on efficacy in improving decision-making than necessarily on novelty of the new approach that you use. Annie, is that both sort of internal and external? In other words, you know, is that improving decision-making for people internally about the internal workings of a company and for how a customer experience is designed as well or what? It can be both. And so, yes, exactly that. It could be internally facing in the extent of it's improving the way that somebody works in the company, or it could also be internal in the sense that it's using a behavioral principle to help our advisors advise clients better. So you could argue that falls kind of as both internal and external. We would be interested on on both sides of that coin. Right. Silly question, but why did they employ you? Not you personally. Why did they have the role? I think, to be honest, I think behavioral science, as you mentioned in the beginning, is a a growing field. I think there was a some period of time where there were a few companies that were sort of notable for employing behavioral science principles and having a lot of success doing that. But I think in the financial services industry, behavioral finance is becoming table stakes now. And I think it's becoming harder to operate and stay at the cutting edge of finance without using behavioral science in some capacity. So I think people are becoming aware of the necessity of it. And so I think for a long time, the efforts were often led by the data science component and the idea of creating different models and scores to understand what people are going to do next. And I think that at least at my company, but I think at a lot of companies more broadly, people are realizing There's also an impetus to understand why people are doing things if we actually want to change what they're doing. And using models to understand like what a person is probably going to do is super useful. But like, what do you do if you actually want them to do something else? And so I think people have realized that's where the behavioral science can come in and that it's, it's applicable to everything. I mean, everything we do is a decision that's part and parcel to or precedes a behavior. And so I think part of the effort is also guiding more processes through the lens of behavioral science beyond just applying the principles in practice. Right. So modeling is kind of useful in a stable or or static environment. But if you want to talk about change or persuasion, that's really where the behavioral science seems to come in. I have a bit of a different perspective. Because I'm at kind of these large tech firms, you know, I think behavioral finance, there's there's a really much larger emphasis on understanding those underlying principles, whereas the battle's a bit more uphill on my side of the of the country at the moment in terms of trying to explain to organizations and to teams why it's important to understand the why behind a behavior, right? So to Annie's point, it's like you could model out, you know, predicted behavior, but then it's like, if I can predict the behavior, but I don't like the behavior, I want it to be different. We need to understand that underlying process in order to be able to shift that behavior. And so 
in finance, and I think in a, in a handful of other places, you're seeing this real openness to behavioral science principles and, and really focusing on an appreciation of uh, quite a bit of the fundamental theories that were established in the field. Whereas on my end, I think there's a lot, I have to be a lot more, for lack of a better word, sneaky about it. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in and throwing out a theory at people, nobody cares. <clears throat> So, so you have to, like, I need sneak theory in the back door. <laughs> sneak theory in the back door, yeah. exactly. And so a lot of the work that's being done in order to understand product development and what drives a customer to want to engage with a product or to stop engaging with the product, you know, traditionally has really been owned by that data science, building out those big predictive models. And it's like, okay, how do we get in here and say, that's great. That's important and that's really helpful, but being able to predict that something will happen doesn't necessarily make it the right thing to happen or the thing that we need to have happen. And if we don't understand those underlying things, we might try something else next time thinking it's the same process. And if you don't have people with kind of a behavioral science background, you don't understand why it's not working the second time. I think I would add to Lauren's point also that I guess in, in my field, at least, I think there's also greater recognition of the cost effectiveness of something like behavioral science that mm. not always, I mean, hopefully with proper experimentation, you can, but you can't always calculate or quantify the value added by behavioral science, but using it, part of its, I think like beauty and elegance comes from its simplicity and just a lot of the time, like altering the architecture of choice or changing the design of an interface or the presentation of a context. And I guess, in my opinion, it's a super cost-effective way to improve metrics or decrease metrics that you want to go down without necessarily creating a new product or reinventing the wheel or rebranding in some way. So I, I think that's also another reason why behavioral science is becoming more attractive in different industries. So, Lauren, can I ask you the same question then? Why did your organization, your company employ, not you, but why the role? Right. Me or people like me. It's really quite honestly. Lauren, um, there's no one like you. Go ahead. What were <laughs> I'm, I am a very unique flower. You know, what they're really, they're employing the skill set, right? So, what people with our kinds of backgrounds bring to the table at a very base level is an understanding of how to think about a problem and how to then go out and test it in the field, right? So an understanding of experimental design. I think in past conversations actually with Annie, and, and I've talked to her about the fact that it's very much like, I felt like I was being hired for my toolkit, right? Right. So it's the toolkit that I brought. And my role isn't specifically behavioral science per se, right? Like that's not my title. My title is, you know, I'm a research scientist. So it's a little bit, that's where I have to do the, the sneaking it in through the back door. And right. there's an appreciation within the organization for my background. There's much more of an orientation towards just do what you need to do and tell us why people feel the way they feel, but don't, we don't need to, to peek underneath the covers, so to speak. Right. Makes sense. One of the, the frustrations for people both on the academic side and on, on kind of the industry side who are all interested in behavioral science, just the fundamental difference in perspective. It's like we're not even speaking the same language a lot of times. Like I've I've presented stuff before to, to managers who are very engaged, very smart people. And then at the end, I'll speak to a couple of them and they'll ask some questions that make me realize like, oh, 
I was speaking past you the whole time. And it's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're, it's because I had a, diff, just a different perspective on these things than they did. So now you guys are in the middle of this. What are some things that you wish people within your organizations or people that you engage with understood about behavioral science and what it does? And then kind of how have you bridged this perspective gap as you've kind of crossed over that bridge? I think first and foremost that if you, <laughs> reading, thinking fast and slow, or or any of the other kind of pop behavioral science books written by brilliant people does not mean you now understand the field. <laughs> you mean you can't just read a book and not do the sort of twenty seven years of academic research and everything else that you guys have done? Okay, but what if I've also watched some TED talks? <laughs> if you've also watched, if you've watched some TED talks, then that's a whole different thing. Okay, okay, good. What's amazing about Lauren's point is the existence of the Dunning Kruger effect in behavioral science in industry as well. Do you want to explain what the Dunning Kruger effect is? So the Dunning Kruger effect is basically the idea that very smart people often think they're not very smart, and not very smart people often think they are above average in, in intelligence. Or, put more succinctly. Fools never question themselves while wise men always do. It's not even about intelligence or capacity necessarily. It's it's also about kind of depth of knowledge. Understanding and knowledge, yeah. Yes, true. But I think there is this sense of, oh, I've read the top five popular press books on behavioral science, so therefore now I am a behavioral scientist. And I can go out and apply these things with rigor and precision and reach the published effects that I've seen some of the greatest minds we've ever seen do in their work which is a little bit frustrating to Lauren's point because it feels a little bit of if like I decided to go read Investing for Dummies and then walked away and said, now I'm going to start advising people on how to manage their wealth. Like I might have some <laughs> fundamental principles that are really key and important, but I'm missing a lot of the context and a lot of the things that need to be considered that takes, a, it's, it's not unlearnable, it's not inaccessible, but it does take a lot of time and training. And like Lauren said, learning how to think, which just takes time to build. I totally agree with with Lauren's point on, I guess, something that I think is worthy of understanding or being aware of is just that the popular press books really scratch the surface of behavioral science. And as a field, as, as everyone here knows, there's extreme breadth and depth of what is encompassed in the field of behavioral science and consumer psychology more broadly. And I guess to your point, Ryan, of language, the, there's a deliberate simplification of the language to make these principles more accessible and usable, but that doesn't mean that they derive from simple theory necessarily or simplicity. Like there is a lot more to them that is maybe getting deliberately ignored for the sake of pragmatism or understanding or usability. But the interesting bit is that by the very nature of you two being on this podcast today and the roles that you have, it shows that there is organizations, and I was particularly interested in what you said, Annie, about organizations in financial services, lots of them are doing it now. And effectively, if you if you don't have somebody that's got that type of role, then you're potentially falling behind. It feels like that there's always going to be this sort of lag behind sort of more cutting edge work and people understanding it. And even in in the, sorry, this has turned out to be a bit of a waffle, but I'll get there in the end. Um, (laughs) Even in the field of customer experience, the danger is, is everybody thinks because they have a customer experience themselves, they know how to create a good one. The reality is, is they don't. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, and that's sort of something we battle all, all the time in the sense of going, yeah, well, you think you may know about it, but actually you don't really. And the danger is, I guess, is the same what you're, you're saying is about you read Thinking Fast and Slow and you think you know everything about it, but actually it's a long way off. So that's the negative side. But the positive side, which I'm encouraged about, is the fact that, you know, you're both gainfully employed in, in large organisations looking at this stuff and actually it seems to be moving ahead, which is good. Absolutely. You know, what I think is really interesting is even when I was getting my degree, I remember faculty members saying things like, oh, when I speak to the MBAs or when I speak to executives, you know, they perhaps said it a bit more nicely, but they essentially said, I really dumb everything down. I I strip all context. I strip all nuance from the finding uh, when I'm delivering it to a non-academic audience. And that always struck me as pretty offensive. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and because it's this assumption that people can't grasp context or nuance. And so I found it's an interesting challenge internally at these large organizations to figure out how to find the time and space to put nuance and context back into a lot of the research that's being done. Because I think we've actually done a great disservice by keeping everything so surface, because then there's an assumption that you understand the process. So something like the paradox of choice, right? This belief, you know, that comes out of the field that if you offer somebody too many choices, they'll actually make a suboptimal decision and they won't actually be satisfied because they're they're overwhelmed by the choice. And the The truth of the matter is, is that finding, even in its original form, was it's context dependent. It's not that in all situations this is the case. It's that in some situations, and we can isolate those situations in a lab, which is phenomenal. But when you come out into industry and you're no longer in a small lab environment, realizing that like, That context actually really matters because if we're pushing through with this notion that people don't like lots of choice and we're stripping down their choices and then we're not understanding why they're actually having a suboptimal experience because we know the paradox of choice is a real thing, Mm -hmm. you've really messed with somebody's customer experience. So I think my challenge on a daily basis, and I'm finding more space for it more often, which is, is really great, is to say, listen... We have to bring nuance and context back into the work that we're doing, especially when we are touching millions or billions of lives and have incredible computing power. We have the ability to shift the context depending on the situation or just to bring that nuance back. And so I think that's another thing that is encouraging to me. And I do believe that we can speak to executives, MBAs, the rest of the business world in a more nuanced way. But the more we treat them like they can't be spoken to that way, the less that we're going to be open to it. I totally agree with you, Lauren. I think I would just add to that to the importance of the time aspect that it's not behavioral science. I mean, to your point, Colin, like we all experience these things all the time. A lot of the principles are super resonant and like very accessible to people. But It's finding the time to actually learn them and communicate it. And I think that is a really big challenge is like, where do you strike that balance of parsimony of like, I want you to know there is nuance here and that there is like some context dependencies. But I also just want to primarily make sure we're speaking this the same language to start and that you're on board with with the program and knowing I only have one hour because everybody has their job that they have to do. Sure. How are you going to grow your market when everyone is competing on the same things? 
What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since 2005, we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you. Could I ask you both to give us an example of something that you've done or an example of, of something in that customer space? where you could say, look, this is what we found and this is therefore what we changed and this is therefore the results as a, as a consequence of that. I'm going to piggyback on that as you as you think about these. Like, I'm, I'm also interested in, are there types of questions that are useful for behavioral scientists working in industry to answer and other types of questions for which like, yeah, no, the tools that we have or the approaches we have are just are not right for that type of question. I don't know if you if you can think about that as you think about an example you can give us. I can give you an example that's very much in the CX space. It's more along the lines of how the toolkit came into play than a specific behavioral science principle, right? Not necessarily about underlying theory, but you know, for listeners who are familiar with customer satisfaction measurement, right? Yep. So classic customer satisfaction, how satisfied were you with this experience or product or service, often on a five-point scale from not at all satisfied to very satisfied. I came into an organization where we had this kind of large-scale global tracker surveys. You know, we're collecting millions of responses a month. And when you have those customer satisfaction metrics, oftentimes they land on an individual support agent, Right. So if, yep. when I fill out that survey, it then Jenny on the other end of the line will see that survey come through and this will impact her job. Right. Her her manager will see it, et cetera. And realizing that oftentimes the experience of the service and the experience provided by the individual agent or service provider are different, right? So I might have an overall negative experience, like I'm not able to return my product or something along those lines, but the individual that I engaged with was quite supportive and helpful. And so can we find ways to ask essentially a customer satisfaction question that can focus on the overall experience and then the individual agent? And can we separate those two things? And oftentimes in those surveys, you see that those two questions are framed quite similarly. How satisfied were you with the experience? How satisfied were you with the agent? And for those of us who have had our hands in data a lot, we'll often find out that those two items are incredibly highly correlated. What does that mean? If Essentially, if I know the answer to the one question, I'm going to know the answer to the other question. They fall together. And when I came in and realized this and said, you know, we have a problem because there's not enough differentiation between these two questions. And so we need to now go through a process of figuring out how can we identify a question in language that will be clear to the customer that you're actually judging two different things. Right. The individual and then the overall experience. And then we went through a large 
process of experimenting with different ways of framing the agent-specific question in order to be able to identify a question that meaningfully pulled apart from the overall customer satisfaction with the experience question. That was very much something that is due to my education and background and training, right? To be able to figure out, like, first of all, we have a problem with the correlation and these two things are really too similar. So they're not serving the purpose that we hope that they will serve. Now we need to identify a better way of doing this. And so we have to go about creating an experiment, right? Which we can test, see which thing is going to be the most valuable and then putting that out into the field. Good, good. And Annie, any examples from your end? So I'm going to give a somewhat vague example because I don't know how much of specifics I'm allowed to share. I guess generally speaking, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about what are the maladaptive financial decision making, financial decisions that investors make, and how can we encourage smarter financial decision making. And so often, I guess the way that we would approach the problem, or I think how having training in behavioral science has changed the way that our team approaches problems is not necessarily from the perspective of, okay, well, let's tell clients that they're doing something wrong. Because a lot of the time when people are doing maladaptive things, like they know they're doing something wrong. It's sort of like someone coming to me and being like, hey, binge watching Netflix is not good for you. And I would be like, that's great. I know that. And I'm still going to go binge watch Netflix. (laughs) And so how it changes the way we approach the problem is let's not just tell people they're wrong, but let's understand like what fundamental need are they filling from engaging in that maladaptive behavior. And so if we can drill down to like the fundamental psychological need that the person has or is filling with that behavior, can we give them a different way of filling that behavior? So maybe instead of binge watching Netflix, I go pursue some sort of hobby or something that's equally fulfilling and engages in my escapism needs or help people understand that alternative need that that's at play and identify and recognize that and that this financial decision is really like a symptom of a bigger need and that following the the more, uh, I guess, expert advice from the advisor is, is the more advisable way to make the financial decisions. So this is how your company came up with that program for binge-watching retirement savings? We actually just binge-watch <laughs> the stock market all day long. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, that makes watch, a lot of and sense. It's, it's an old loop, actually. So it's just from the <laughs> 80s, and we watch it just go up and down. It's Yeah, it's awesome. Very soothing. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I'm the wrong segment for that type of approach, but there you go. <laughs> Ryan, I don't know if that answered the questions that you had. Yeah, I, well, I confusingly layered on a completely different question, which was similar in my own mind. So let me try again. I think it was very handy, mate. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, it's that's what I do. <laughs> um, if I can slow this thing down to a dead stop at any point, um, that's what I like to try. Now, my question was more about kind of the type of problems. Like behavioral science is a set of tools and a set of theories. And at least from my perspective, those work well for addressing certain types of problems, answering certain types of questions, and then less well for other types. So I don't, I don't even know if that's a, a useful question to ask from your perspectives, but I'll try and see if I can't grind this thing to a halt once again. But like, maybe I can ask it a different way. Do you ever run into to situations where people go, oh, 
solve this problem for us using behavioral science. And then you go, yeah, no, like that's not, that's not within the domain that we're, we're looking at. Or alternatively, where somebody says, somebody says to you, like, we don't need your help with this. And you desperately say, no, no, this is exactly what behavioral science is supposed to be helping us with. I think more so what we run into is, is this question the best use of our resources or is there another team that's even better suited for this question that's not us? So I think what's really nice about behavioral science is it can often be a link between different types of research. And so there's a lot, the Venn diagram of behavioral science with data science, UX, market research, like there's lots of overlap in the skills and the tools that those groups have. And lots of people often come from very similar backgrounds too. And so I think it's more of a question of if, if someone comes to us, for example, with a question that we could definitely answer, we have the tools to, to do it and the, the knowledge to execute on it, but it actually falls more squarely in another team's wheelhouse. Like I think being very clear about that sort of delegation is probably what we run into more than this is a misunderstanding of what we can do. It was a great answer to a terrible question. Good job, Anne. <laughs> Surely the big issue must be people don't know what they don't know. I'm sitting here thinking of the pandemic and I'm sitting here thinking of all the politicians that get in all these briefings from these extremely clever people on on the, the virus and everything else. And they must be also thinking, how do I put this over in a simple message? And the same clearly must apply with you guys. I think that's totally true. And something I, I think you made this point earlier, too, in relation to the fact that behavioral science is so resonant because we all experience and, and do these things all the time. I think often behavioral scientists themselves forget what is common knowledge and what isn't common knowledge. And I think for myself, I often like, you know, I'll have a conversation. I'm like, I can't believe that person didn't know what prospect theory is. And then I sort of take a minute and I'm like, well, where did I learn what prospect theory <laughs> right. is? Because if I learned it in a in a very specific book or in my graduate school training, then why would I expect this other person to automatically just have like had that knowledge out of nowhere? And so I think there's both this tension of some people not knowing what they don't know. And then behavioral scientists, I guess I've, I've often observed believing that other people have this shared set of knowledge because it feels so obvious once you do know it. That's a really good point. It's like, it's, it's hard to unknow what you, what you already know. That's just a human bias. The interesting part for me is just that first step effectively. Okay. Which is going, somebody in the organization goes, Hey, we need to employ a behavioral scientists. Whoever the boss is, is going, you know, that's going to cost us X amount of dollars a year. What's the return we're going to get on that then? And that's where it just sort of plays into the practical things. I'm conscious of time. So let me ask you both one last question. If there was an organization that didn't employ a behavioral scientist, but were thinking of it, you know, why should they do it? What's the advantage that they would gain? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I'm highly motivated to answer this in a good way, you know, make sure that we can continue to be highly employable. Or alternatively, if they needed to fire one behavioral scientist in your oh, organization, okay. <laughs> who should that be and why? I think a lot of what we bring to the table is 
the way we think about the world and the way we think about problems. So we are steeped in theory and kind of this, these fundamental understandings of judgment and decision-making and, and human behaviors. And it's not necessarily that every day I walk in and say, let's talk about prospect theory or regulatory focus theory, because that's the, the thing that's going to make the difference. But what I can do or what we can do is come in and say, let's think about this from a more human-centered process, right? So you, you get a lot of human-centered design and kind of speaking in these ways, but there's actually very little work, you know, outside of very specific industries that is saying like, no, 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 no. We need to focus on understanding what our customers' needs are, desires, our motivations are in order to impact their behaviors, good, bad, or otherwise. And I think we can come in and provide that overarching understanding of why you you need to understand these underlying behaviors and motivations, but then of course, having the skill set to be able to test it and measure it and get a better understanding of it, I think is really critical. One of the things that ends up happening when you don't have somebody who has the training taking on these types of responsibilities is some sort of an intervention is designed and then is put in place in perpetuity. And nobody's thinking about the fact that like humans habituate. And if you don't have somebody thinking about that and testing it, going out, making sure that the intervention is continuing to be effective, and then inevitably finding out it is no longer effective and needing to identify a new intervention, you're going to have a situation in which people are going to say, why do we need behavioral science? It doesn't work. And this is why you need somebody who's done more than just read the book to be able to sit back and constantly question the process and question whether or not the intervention that worked yesterday is continuing to work today. Good answer. How about you, Annie? I totally agree with with all of Lauren's points. She kind of took everything I was going to say. So you should hire Lauren. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm taking your job, Annie. That's my goal. Yeah, yeah watch out. <laughs> I think uh, I'm sweating. I think that probably one of the the biggest advantages I think of employing a behavioral scientist who has had the training and the background in that area is, to Lauren's point, I think having better starting points for answering questions and also facilitating better question asking. And so with Lauren's example with the satisfaction surveys, the idea of is it better to ask the question of how do we improve this or do we start back with are we even asking this question the right way? And I think a training in behavioral science can facilitate that and can also facilitate a quicker ability to look at a problem and have some understanding of all the potential context and competing processes that might be at play that might influence which nudge you should you should apply or whether it will work in that context. And I think also to Lauren's point about if you just apply it and then you have this sort of dissatisfied feeling of, I guess it doesn't work. I do think setting expectations is really important for companies considering hiring behavioral scientists. I think you read, lots of people read the popular press books and then they want the silver bullet for themselves or <laughs> their elixir to all problems retention. There's a reason the same like dozen principles come up in every single popular press book, because they are cherry picked as some of the canonical best examples of the field. But finding a silver bullet is an unreasonable expectation. But doing research that helps you ask better questions, understand your customers better, and make incremental improvements over time, and to Lauren's point, continuing to test and improve is, I think, much more reasonable. But that also relies on enabling behavioral scientists. So I think my big thing would be for companies considering hiring a behavioral scientist 
is I do get this sense that sometimes it can be hard to know the best way to use them. And it's sometimes hard for the behavioral scientists to also communicate that. But I think the more that you can enable them to do experiments on behavioral principles and do experiments in earnest, not just like, well, we changed the comma, so why aren't we seeing our growth go up by 10%, <laughs> is really, really important. Both good answers. And to be absolutely clear, if I was in corporate life, I would be employing both of you, actually. Sweet. Um, <laughs> but, but not as podcasters, because that job's... <laughs> 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 but yeah, no, I think I think it's where the future lies. I think it is absolutely about asking the right questions. And too many organizations still look at problems from a very simplistic view. I wish I had a dollar for every time. I was talking to a client the other day. They turned around and said to me, yeah, we did some research on that seven years ago. And you think, yeah, come on, seven years ago. <laughs> I mean, seven months ago was bad enough. But seven years ago, do you think things have changed a bit since then? Yeah, but uh, there you go. I think I would also add to that the idea that you talked earlier about potentially being lagged behind on cutting edge interventions. And I think there's there's a risk of just applying the behavioral principles that we already know of and that are demonstrated a lot in popular press books. Because I think what's amazing about behavioral science, like all sciences, it's it's unfinished. We don't know everything. And that there's still so much opportunity to identify new biases or new nudges for combating biases or capitalizing on, on decision tendencies. And I think like the more companies can enable behavioral scientists to find new things, I think that will provide a lot of value and also would, would make your behavioral scientists very happy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Ryan, any questions from you? I'm conscious of time. That's Colin's way of saying, Ryan, do you have any questions? <laughs> really? Do you have any questions? <laughs> yeah. That's Colin's nudge for me that he's developed. I, I think that the points articulated around magical bulletism, which is a phrase I just invented. I like that. Were really good because so much of behavioral science is written up as if it's magic. We changed these three words and sales increased by 50%. And that's, that's just not how people work usually. And, and there is this value, as Annie said, of small incremental changes that provide small incremental advantages. And over time, those really build up and accumulate. And then also to Lauren's point about understanding the why that's driving behavior and, and how advantageous that can be over the long term. So I'm so grateful you guys came on. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's re really great. Annie and Lauren, if people want to get hold of you, how do they best do that? Should they just look for you on LinkedIn or what would you suggest? Yeah, Lauren Cheatham on LinkedIn. Otherwise, I'm also l.b.cheatham on Instagram. Okay, great. And we'll be putting these in the show notes as well. So, Annie? And I will not give my Instagram, but I'm Ann Wilson on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm in the Silicon Valley. I got to give my Instagram. You can find me amongst the 500 million other Ann Wilsons. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> this is a test of how much you really want to get a hold of, Annie. Exactly. Great. Good. Well, thank you very much for both of you coming on the show. It's been uh, really, really interesting. 
we'll look forward to you taking over as host next week. So, uh, and I'm sure that the, <laughs> I'm sure the silver bullet has been found, and they've actually found some competent hosts for this podcast. So we'll take it on from there. Thanks very much, everybody, and uh, look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. <laughs>